This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. When you're impeaching somebody, you want to make sure you have the strongest possible indictment. Because it's not the means to the end that people think. When you look at past impeachments, whether it was President Clinton or I guess President Nixon never got there. He left. I don't leave. It's a big difference. I don't leave. Welcome, everybody. This is Where Did You Get This Number, the podcast that takes you inside the data, helps you make sense of it, sort it out, get some context. I am Anthony Salvanto, and this is Len Steinhorn, my colleague here at CBS News. He is our political analyst. If you listen to CBS Radio, you have undoubtedly heard much of him before. Len, welcome. Happy to be here. And I I have to add all your other titles, Len. You're professor of communication at American University, affiliate professor of history, All good stuff. We're going to bring historical context. We're going to try to communicate. (laughs) Um, So let's see how we do. One of the things you and I have been watching here in D.C. as we tape this is the back and forth among Democrats over whether to press for impeachment, whether to continue to stress investigating President Trump or whether to move on. And I can tell you, The polling shows these big differences between the Democratic rank and file base out there in the electorate, two thirds of whom say, keep going, keep investigating. And then the general public where independents, certainly Republicans are saying, move on to something else. And it seems like Speaker Pelosi, who sort of tried to go slow on this, is thinking about that second group. The folks who are saying, well, wait a second, we don't we don't want impeachment, but our caucus is obviously pressing for it. What do you see behind that that goes beyond the punditry and takes us to why it is that people would process and hear so differently the way that the folks are talking about this? Because impeachment, like just about everything else in our political culture today, is like a Rorschach test. (laughs) You see it and you have a different interpretation of it. Or to use the great Paul Simon lyric in the Simon and Garfunkel song, The Boxer, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Look, in the polling bears you out on that. When Republicans hear impeachment, they're hearing Democrats say, We want to run the 2016 election again. Mm -hmm. We don't think it was fair. We think we got we got robbed, et cetera. And when Democrats hear impeachment, they're hearing we don't like the president and we see a way to get him out, which also speaks to me as a pollster about what people think impeachment as a process actually means. It does not mean removing someone from office. The House cannot do that. Yes. And look, because everything is so politicized, that impeachment becomes this thing where it's one side against the other rather than sort of a faithful commitment to what our founders viewed as what impeachment needs to be. So, yes, 
impeachment takes place in the House. You'd first generally go through the House Judiciary Committee to uh, sort of vote out articles of impeachment. And then the entire House of Representatives would vote on that and requires a majority vote that would then go to the Senate for a trial to see if the president would be removed from office or convicted. That would require a two-thirds vote. But here's the thing that our founders made clear when they created the impeachment clause in our Constitution. They believed that elections every four years weren't enough of a check on a president who abused power or violated the public trust. In that frame, what the Republicans are saying is, no, President Trump didn't abuse power. He didn't commit a crime. The Mueller investigation said that, you know, there was no conspiracy or, as the Republicans say, no collusion. So, you know, lay off, move on. We've got to move on to the business of the country. The Democrats are saying, nope, we are fully in line with what the founders imagined impeachment to be, which is when a president violates the public trust or abuses power, that's when we need to investigate. And I think that also is informed by the timing. If this is one year into office, if this is six months into office, you have a really different context. But you've got now 2020 Democratic candidates are already out there. I've heard some of them say what you're saying. We've only got another year or so, and then we, they say the Democrats, can beat him. And I've heard our other reporters in the field mention that in the audiences, there isn't a lot of spontaneous questions coming up about, hey, when does impeachment start or, hey, when investigate the questions coming up are about health care. They tell me the questions coming up are about taxes, etc., all of which is reflected also in the polling where in the midterms last year and since then, Those issues have been top of mind for a lot of Democrats. So there is this juxtaposition between the politics in D.C. and what folks are out there on the campaign trail talking about and and hearing. And Nancy Pelosi is, you know, finally attuned to those politics. And she's basically saying, what's the point of going through this if he will not be convicted by the Senate which is a majority Republicans, and therefore why raise this? Because it will come off as overtly political and potentially undermine what a lot of voters think Washington needs to be doing, which is addressing, as you say, health care and infrastructure and jobs and, and all of those issues that they care about. So, you know, from her perspective, you know, the Democrats endanger themselves by going down a path that even if they don't believe it's political because they believe that the president has violated the public trust, it will be interpreted as political. It will be played as political. And all of a sudden, the Democrats lose credibility as a voice of the common person. And that's the logic that Nancy Pelosi is bringing to her sort of let's hit the pause button. Let's find out if we can get this information and let's see what happens down the line. One of the things that fascinates me, and I want to ask you this as as a historian, is that when people talk about investigations and impeachment, they invariably bring up the very few times, I think fortunately for the country, the very few times that it's really come up in the past. And obviously the most more recent example, it's not that recent anymore, but is the the Nixon case and the, the Clinton case. And then you start to see people try to draw historical lessons from what happened politically out of those cases. The most recent, like I mentioned, the Clinton case, well, did that 
help Republicans win back the White House a few years later in 2000? Did it cost them in the subsequent midterms in 1998? You can find different views on that. And they try to apply those lessons to today. One of the things I think you raise is those historical analogies only go so far because you had a different media world back then. It was a different way in which which the parties could communicate with their rank and file. And maybe we wouldn't see as much movement in in the polling as we might have in, in those past eras. Well, one of the revealing examples was uh, the Republican Congress member, Justin Amash in, from Michigan, the only Republican member of Congress who has called for the impeachment proceedings to go ahead uh, in the House of Representatives, he held a town hall and he was talking with constituents. And one constituent basically said, you know, I've mainly listened to conservative news and I hadn't heard anything negative about the Mueller report and President Trump had been exonerated. So basically, you know, having a very fragmented media ecosystem, people are hearing different interpretations of what the Mueller report said and what it was all about. And President Trump has done a very good job and Attorney General Barr of saying there is no collusion, no no conspiracy and keep repeating that to the point that it makes it seem like the Democrats are simply trying to redo the 2016 election. They're out for revenge. And that creates the problem that Nancy Pelosi is saying we can't you know, we have to address because we can't go through this being accused of simply politicizing the impeachment process and coming as if we're simply trying to go after President Trump and undo his presidency. And a lot of it has to do with their calculus of how people will decide in 2020, not what they'll decide, but how they will decide. On one hand, you've got an economy that most voters say is good. And we see now increasing numbers of people saying that President Trump is responsible for that good economy. Now, that in historical terms, again, would be a pretty powerful current, right, pushing along an incumbent president. One of the things to go back to the 90s that helped uh, then President Clinton's approval ratings during his impeachment trial was the fact that people thought the economy was good. And, hey, wait a second, let's not rock the boat here, regardless of what we think of this particular president. And you could certainly see that same calculus in the voters' minds playing out. It's certainly something we'll be watching for as we go towards 2020. On the other hand, is it the case, though, that as these candidates, as these Democratic candidates are out there running for the nomination and against each other, they're going to have to try to find ways to differentiate themselves from one another. And one dimension on which they could try to do that is who's more forceful in going against the president, who is going to be you know, the best critic of the president. And this this kind of backdrop could you know, give them fuel to do that. And I think one of the things that I would say to my pollster friends is uh, we should be looking at the concept that I would call Trump fatigue. And we should be looking at whether there's Trump fatigue among some of those persuadable voters in those battleground states. Because you can argue that whether, you know, whatever impact impeachment had on the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton, 
There was clearly Clinton fatigue at the end of his administration. Fatigue meaning meaning what exactly? Like we're just tired of all the drama, tired of all the back and forth about whether he was a good guy or whether he, you know, was would demean the office of the presidency. And in many ways that did come through when part of the frame of George W. Bush's uh, presidential candidacy was he wanted to restore the honor and, and integrity of the office. And I think that was one of his major talking points when he ran for president in the year 2000. And also note that Al Gore and the Democrats understood that there may have been this sort of, quote, Clinton fatigue, even among their core voters. And that's one of the reasons why he chose a harsh critic of Bill Clinton to be his vice presidential pick, Joe Lieberman. So the question ultimately to me is, are enough voters feeling tired of all the Trump drama or are there enough voters who feel so empowered by Donald Trump that, you know, that where is it going to come out and wash out in 2020? And I think some of that speaks to a back and forth we're going to see over who is seen as driving the drama. Now, that may already be baked into the cake because Republicans will think Democrats are and Democrats will think, you know, Republicans and the president are. But if that's true, if people do get tired of the D.C. politics and the drama, et cetera, then who's seen as as inciting it? And at this point, given the fact that the majority, as I said at the top, the majority is saying move on from this and Democrats are, are in disagreement then perhaps the danger Democrats are seeing then is that they'll be seen as the ones continuing to push for the drama, continuing continuing to push that, that forward. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is people will look back to the Nixon era and they'll say, you know, look at those polls. You know, the Senate Watergate hearings were being held in the spring of 1973. And at that point, only 6% of Republicans said that Nixon should be impeached. And in fact, 76% approved of his presidency. That's after John Dean's testimony. That's after the Sam Irvin committee. That's after all of this stuff coming out. And yet you had widespread support of Richard Nixon among Republicans back then. In fact, many Republican leaders were calling the whole Watergate thing, and I quote some, a political winch hunt. Um, that media reports were unfounded and unsubstantiated, and it was all about mudslinging. So the Democrats will say, look, dial back 46 years, and essentially Nancy Pelosi's logic doesn't apply. Republicans were very much in support of Richard Nixon. Most people didn't want to see him impeached at that particular point. And yet we went through that process and we were able to find that he did commit, as the Constitution says, high crimes and misdemeanors. In fact, even after the Watergate tapes came out, only 31 percent of Republicans at that moment in time in early August of 1974 said that Richard Nixon's actions were serious enough to have him removed from office and 50 percent still approved of his presidency. So what Democrats will say is, look, we've always lived in a partisan era. You know, let's not worry about Republicans coming to the table here. If we have a duty, a constitutional duty to create an impeachment inquiry and research this and evaluate the evidence, then that is our duty and stop sort of using the frame that we're being too political if this individual has violated the public trust. We've already talked about the different media environment, but I would raise a different electoral environment too, in the sense that the Republicans back in that era, as with the Democrats, 
were often very worried about what would happen to them at the next general election. Whereas today, most, you know, members of Congress, members of the Senate will often tell you they're worried about or or act, I should say, they may not tell you, but they'll act as though they are more worried about a primary within their own party. And that is a different partisan environment. You will certainly see, or at least Republicans often act as though they fear, if they go against this president who is, I should note, tremendously popular within the Republican Party. He's at well over 80 percent approval on overall and just about everything that he does, every particular issue. If they're seen as going against him, then the challenge they may get is come next spring for a fellow Republican saying, well, wait a second, this person isn't part of the team. And And that's a different environment. Right. And I think that they may be willing to move or some may be willing to change and deal with that potential sort of primary threat if the case could be made that President Trump has indeed committed high crimes and misdemeanors. But so far, we don't have any tapes like we did with Nixon that will sort of make it come alive and you hear his voice and you hear his words. What you have is a Mueller report. What you have is a set of evidence that the president's attorney general said doesn't constitute obstruction of justice. So the Democrats would have to make the case and a compelling case to be able to persuade enough Republicans to take that risk to say, hey, maybe this guy has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. But that also brings us to what is that definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. And, you know, because that would be at the center of this impeachment inquiry. And sort of it's one of the more misunderstood concepts of our Constitution. What the founders defined high crimes and misdemeanors as, as political crimes that could cause serious harms to our trust in government or could undermine the integrity of public office or, in this case, the presidency. And I I will have you and our our listeners look ahead here. One of the key measures we're going to watch over the next six, eight months is what people think they've gotten from Democratic governance in the House. Those who voted for Democrats in the midterms last time, partly it was to be a check on the president. And we actually saw historic levels of people who said that the president was on their minds when they cast their congressional ballot. So there is there is some part of that. And we can go back and forth on what a check means, to your point. But they may be getting that. But are they also do they also feel like they're getting a look at what democratic governance would mean were there to be a democratic president? And I think that overall view, that overall context is going to be either the tailwind or the headwind against or for any potential 2020 Democratic nominee. And I'm sure that the potential nominees are highly cognizant of that. And that, I think, is, is going to be sort of the keys to the game, mm-hmm. one of the things to watch as we go forward. And um, I think we're going to probably going to run out of time here. But but speaking of going forward, there will be more to unpack on this, I, I am sure, regardless of what we say, D.C. is going to do what D.C. is going to do. All right. So uh, let's let's leave it there for now. Um, Len Steinhorn, uh, this has been a tremendous amount of fun and really insightful. Thanks. Thank you. All right.
right. And for everybody out there, this is Where Did You Get This Number? Thank you for listening. I want to thank everybody here at CBS Radio, my intrepid producer, as always, Alan Pang, who pulls this all together. If you like what you've heard and you want to follow along with the next updates, we will have more, uh, more with Len, more with me uh, coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, Next episode next week. Until then, I am Anthony Salvanto for CBS News. Thank you so much for listening. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Spoiler alert, it's neither. At Happy Egg, we believe happiness of the hens is what actually came first, because without happy hens, there would be no such thing as happy eggs. You know, eggs with delicious orange yolks. Those come from hens who are raised the happy way on eight-plus acres of family-owned farms. Choose happy at happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg.